come out of your sort of view of it and think of it more holistically in terms of what these guys are fighting against. No, no, no listen, as a black person, as a black person, as a black Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is reconfiguring whiteness. Hello listeners, before the episode starts, this is a little bit of a trigger warning to say that we discuss some issues of mental health, trauma and also suicide during this episode. Hello everyone, another week of Surviving Society. Are we Surviving Society, T? Boy, I, I don't even know. I think I'm on. clinging on. I want to start a revolution, bro. That's how man's rolling. Anyway, we are Surviving Society today with Adam Philogen Heron, who is going to talk to us about some really, really fascinating bit. Adam, tell us about your research. <laughs> so I'm a Caribbeanist anthropologist, and I like to put it in that, that way around. So mm-hmm. um, my focus is on the Caribbean. I'm an anthropologist by training. What does so, that mean? So an anthropologist is somebody who studies a culture perhaps the same or different to their own. Um, and does a certain work of cultural translation in a way, if you will. Mm. So we understand, we want to understand the life worlds of people from their own perspectives. How do you understand and experience the world? Through observation, observing everyday practices, rituals, how do you bury your dead? Um, how do you go about starting your day? Um, what do the rhythms of the week look like in terms of day-to-day activities? But also in terms of hearing people's voices, of course. Mm. Um, so we do ethnography, which is essentially writing about a people or about human beings, writing about their everyday, everyday lives, essentially. And that can include histories as well, so ethnic histories and so on, particular regions. So not to go too deep into what anthropology is about, because I use that more as a kind of a, a frame to be able to research and think about things that fascinate me and things that I think need to be kind of urgently addressed and carefully thought through. Why is it that sometimes I feel a bit funny about anthropology? Tell me, why is it that you feel a bit <laughs> I, funny about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 know what, I know what's being gestured towards, but yeah. it's nice to be uh, uh, to articulate yeah. it. Do you know what I mean? To try and say it and put it in. My classic 19th century mode of anthropology of white people going there and studying people who are primitive and to learn from them and how that actually is still prevalent, man. Mm-hmm. And that's so deeply entrenched in the kind of that kind of social science. It's... I guess it's similar in the way that sociology is kind of birthed in the notion of empire and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to kind of well, come to terms with that, really. Mm. How do you separate yourself from that? Because you're effectively studying a group of people under a microscope almost. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you come to terms with that? Like? Mm-hmm. But why do we think we're any different from that? Sociologists? Oh, I don't. I don't, I don't, mm. I don't. Yeah. But this, these, are, these are both really, really important questions. It's, um, it's a complicated relationship. It has been and it continues to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we need to dwell in that complexity and some of those contradictions. So just to give you a little bit of my own biography, and then I can speak more to anthropology more generally as a discipline. I stumbled across anthropology because I wanted to know more about the history of Dominica, which is an island that I thought I knew about until I arrived at in my 20s. So Dominica was part of my maternal landscape. So I mix mix in terms of my Mum's from Dominica, from the Caribbean. Small island in between Martinique and Guadeloupe, for anyone who doesn't know it, not the Dominican Republic. I want to be very clear on that. Um, And then my dad's family is Scottish and English. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about growing up in the UK and in Bristol, a black Atlantic city with many connections to the Caribbean, which I'd like to speak a little bit about later. Um, I wanted to know a bit more about this place that we constantly heard about, but I'd never visited. Anthropology gave me a, a route through which to explore this place, this kind of, this inheritance which I had, which we'd wave our flags at carnival once a, mm. once a year. We might eat certain kinds of foods. We had 
we were, we were familiar with certain kind of sim- symbolic representations of this place, but didn't have first-hand experience of it. Mm. And my grandmother, um, she she was she was with us until I was until my eleventh birthday. She she died close to my eleventh birthday, but I never really knew her because she in her later life she was in and out of mental homes and mm. highly medicated. So I never really had conversations with her about Dominica. So anthropology gave me an opportunity to understand the history of the region, the histories that brought Caribbean populations to the UK to understand the everyday life worlds of people living and making life in the Caribbean under very, very harsh historical and contemporary conditions. And I want to know more, for example, about the banana economy in the Caribbean. Okay. Yeah, so it used to be the kind of... Dominica used to produce some of the most bananas per capita in terms of the number of people of anywhere in the region. And then IMF policies, World Bank policies, and various different uh, World Trade Organization policies led to the destruction of the banana industry. Okay. Anthropology gave me a route through which to understand these okay. kinds of phenomena. How did they destroy it? Um, so essentially, what you had is after um, the kind of the, the wrapping up of kind of em- empire in terms of the, the, the formal formal empire, um, countries becoming independent, the, the European Union developed what was called the Lomé Agreement, which was giving preferential markets to ACP countries, Asia, um, Caribbean, and, uh, African Caribbean and Pacific countries. Um, so in other words, there, was, there were a number of guaranteed markets, quotas for bananas to be exported and for various different agricultural products to ensure that there was kind of, that there was a viability of these industries after the end of empire. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it had a kind of a benevolent intention to it. At, at a certain point, the big banana producers like Dole and Chiquita, That's say they, they, don't want to fuck they up, started putting pressure on the World Trade Organization <laughs> yeah. to say, actually, this is against the rules of free trade, mm-hmm. right? There's preferential treatment going on here. And eventually they were able to dismantle these markets. I mean, the the horrific thing of it is that 3% of the global banana trade had been captured by the Caribbean, just 3%. So 97% was pretty much kind of corporate owned by various different places around, big companies around the world. And they wanted that tiny little portion and they were willing to do whatever it took to to, to get it. And essentially that caused kind of economic crises within within places like St. Lucia. Others have transitioned towards tourist-based economies, and we know there are certain complexities now, power dynamics, relationship between servitude in the history of the Caribbean and the service industry in terms of who's serving who and so on. So that's fought with its own kind of complexities and where the money from tourism revenues go. But in somewhere like Dominica, they didn't have, they didn't really have opportunities to go down that kind of tourism route. So mm-hmm. they're still living with the effects of, of, of the decline of banana trade now. Yeah, that the Chiquita and Dolphins mad and how they started breeding a certain type of banana. Mm. Different types of bananas they started making. And there's one standard one that everyone eats now. Mm-hmm. But that's the top selling one. I think Chiquita's still going. The mm. whole kind of fell by the wayside, man. Shocking. Um, so deep as well. So many layers to it. And the urgent conversations which are happening globally around um, around like species extinction mm-hmm. and so on. This is very much closely tied to monocrop agriculture, right? Okay. So the variation of the kinds of bananas because of the dominance of particular kinds which... And there are certain regulations about what would have access to particular markets and what would be sold in particular places mm-hmm. leads to very kind of narrow breeding of particular crops and then crops which traditionally were produced in various different places no longer exist. And this is it. So this ties into like big companies like Tesco, Safeway, going to banana producers and say, listen, we're not buying those bananas. I thought you just mm-hmm. said Safeway. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my, 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 that's a nice throwback. I love that throwback. Man's is 41, man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, like... It shows you like they will t- turn away a whole pro- a whole crop because it doesn't meet their particular standards of what we think is acceptable. Mm. And most supermarkets, bananas account for like one percent or two percent of the total gross of sales in supermarkets. Man, so it's a lot of money, man. Mm-hmm. Bananas are a lot of money. Mm. 
it's the impact is it's insane. So I've digressed slightly. Yeah. No, I no, but it's really important to digression. Yeah. So I wanted to know a little bit more about the history of this particular island, which I claimed heritage from, but that I never visited. The main kind of benefit, I'd say, of becoming an anthropologist is that you get to do long-term fieldwork in, in a particular place. <laughs> um, so I was able to go to Dominica for between a year, year and a half, on and off, kind of moving backwards and forth, and do kind of long-term fieldwork on fatherhood, which is what my PhD thesis was all about. Through a kind of a desire to know the Caribbean mm-hmm. and my maternal line leading mm-hmm. me to the Caribbean in terms of kind of ancestry, it was kind of exciting for me to... Um, have the prospect of meeting my grandfather properly for the first time, who'd retired to Dominica. He worked in Cadbury's chocolate factory, processing imperial products that came into into the UK. Wow. My grandmother, for a short period, worked in Will's tobacco factory. So we talked about Bristol as this Black Atlantic city, yeah, mm. where various different things that moved through the triangular trade were moving through this port city. So even when they came in the 1950s, these products were still being processed in Bristol. He'd been told by his doctor when he retired after th- over 30 years of service that he had, re- he had really, really bad asthma. He had to stop working. And how do you cure your asthma? That's what he asked Doc. And the doctor told him he needs to go somewhere warmer, which will be better for his asthma. Next minute, booked a ticket back to Dominica and never looked back, never came back to England. So I wanted to get to know this man. That was almost a kind of launch pad for this wider project, which was going to be about fatherhood. And the idea that, in, that somehow the plantation had killed the black father and that it wasn't, and that fatherhood was always going to be something which was associated with absence, um, with irresponsibility and so on within the Caribbean context. And I wanted to, to challenge that and interrogate that within, within my work and to find other everyday stories of, of how people make kinship and, and family. And we'll, there'll be links in the episode guide to this, but Adam's work on fatherhood is just beautiful. Like, it really, really is. Like, it's so... It, helped me think differently about particularly how I think about mm. black fatherhoods. Even yeah. though my, my dad isn't from the Caribbean, like definitely so many like but similarities. It's a well-worn and... narrative though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Especially within, you start believing the hype, man. You think, yeah, it, it is true. Mm. All our dads not here. So all my, all my black mates, all their dads not there. Mm-hmm. So you start believing that this is real. Mm-hmm. And on the individual level, these guys might be arsholes, but... It doesn't speak to a wider issue. It's, different, it's more complex than that. And it also doesn't tell the full story. Yeah, like, yeah. Even if some of our dads haven't been around, yeah. like, it's only now as an adult that I sort of have been able to look at it more holistically. Like, What were the things that were happening? Like, How was my dad as a black man treated by my white family that also mm. happened to be working class? Like, you know, all these different things. Like, mm. And it's so powerful the way you talk about the plan- connecting that to the plantation because mm. it makes me think about things like that we don't talk about enough, like mental health, fathers and mothers and how they were affected by these violence, colonial violences like it's all, that's what I feel like your work is so see, good at doing Is when I've been speaking to my, so I've had the opportunity to speak to my gran because she's mm. come over now and so where your family hail from? Grenada mm-hmm. so, revolutionary spirit <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm saying, start right at some, but she's 50, 84 and so I've been speaking to her and trying to understand like the trauma mm-hmm. that they go through so some of these guys that they came over, they've had, they had breakdowns, man. But because it wasn't viewed as a... They didn't understand it as mental illness, they said, this guy's just gone funny. Mm-hmm. That was their quote. Mm-hmm. He's just gone funny. Mm-hmm. And so that means, just give him a drink and he'll be all right. Mm-hmm. That was the attitude. My mum's sister, she had a breakdown. And, started, and she had loads of kids. And that was just because of the trauma. She never recovered, man. Mm-hmm. Because so, you don't realise how close they are to, to slavery still. And to colonial yeah. violence, yeah. And, and there's, a, there's an interesting... I, I, 
I was often fascinated by the way that people would talk about madness, as they would refer to it, at least in Dominica. Mm. And it was something which was almost seen as being a kind of a, a choice. It was almost as if if you weren't able to hold on to your sanity and you'd be given, you'd be encouraged in all these different ways and be supported in all these different ways to hold on to your sanity. But if you weren't able to clutch your sanity and you reached the point where you let go and you went foo, which is a Creole word for mad, it was seen as something which would lead you to ruin, to potential death, to walking up and down on, on the road, um, kind of following ants and so on. Do you know what I mean? Like you, is almost the, the sense is that because of such a history of such extreme conditions and, and a history of violence and many forms of violence that kind of have legacies into the present now, that you have to be that strong, you have to be that, that resilient to be able to hold on to your sanity yourself. And I remember I heard stories of um, one interview which will never, never leave me was um, one father who, whose family story, I, I do kind of life history interviews with people, and he told me um, about the story of his mother who had, if I'm remembering correctly, eight children, and if the father was present in the home, he was a butcher, but he was kind of absent present, as many referred to it. So he was present, but he was kind of, he was physically present, but he was kind of absent, kind of emotionally, and, and would kind of come and go, and didn't have direct interaction that much with kind of his children and so on. And the mother, um, and he, the mother and him had a very tense relationship, and sometimes he'd withhold, he was the only one who, who had a monetary income into the family, and he would withhold money from her to be able to feed the eight children. And I remember one day the mother being at such a wit's end in terms of the story that he was telling me that one day she just decided to walk into the sea to commit suicide and just went in a straight line, just straight into the sea until her children chased after her and pulled her out. So I think that just goes to show that for, for many who kind of inherit that history, the kind of the difference between sanity and, and insanity can be such a kind of fine line and that mental health is something which generations now are beginning to really address, but that before... There wasn't a vocabulary to talk about yeah. these things. Do you know what I mean? They didn't. Really, it's like from how our nan's position, it's seen as a weakness, man. Mm. Like they just couldn't keep their shit together. Mm-hmm. And given, like you said, given they come from such extreme situations, like you should be used to that. That toughen mm. up. So they like even when they're in pain, like they can't walk. They they hold it in, man. It's a level of toughness I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And they can't understand it. They they see if you're being kind of that kind of displaying that kind of weakness. They see it as a, a bad thing. It's definitely a negative. Mm. Strange, man. I guess because we're talking about the fatherhood stuff, could you tell us a little bit about that work? Like, what you were obviously trying to dispel these myths. How did that sort of play out in the research with your participants? What your sort of conclusions were? So my aim was to take a kind of a life course approach. So I'd be in conversation with anyone about the theme of, of, of fatherhood and about family more generally. Um, and about relations both between men and women, mothers and fathers within families as well. And also, if I'm following a, a kind of a life course approach, then we've got to talk to grandfathers, we've got to talk to grandmothers as well, and so on. Um, and to see how these how patterns might shift as you move through the life course. So what I was essentially trying to do, as I mentioned before, was overcome what I refer to as the myth of the dead father, yeah? So this is the idea that the plantation, as I said before, essentially killed the black father by usurping the role of the father and placing that within a kind of a white patriarch, the plantation owner, right? And that I'm saying that, well, actually, if you look at the historical record, it's much more complex than that. Not to say that there weren't, that all of this control and dominance didn't, wasn't invested and wasn't kind of monopolised by plantation owners, but that fathers, labouring fathers, were able to execute and have, have their own paternal functions in many different ways and would be recognised as fathers within their own families. 
And so essentially I was trying to recover those kinds of lost histories and then bring that into the present to say, well, what are we, what are we missing when we're constantly preoccupied by these notions of absence? So I wasn't saying that fathers aren't absent in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. I would never want to deny what you were saying before to sort of in, terms of, in terms of your friends growing up here and their own experiences, but more to say what are these kind of lesser acknowledged everyday examples of family and father's involvements in family that we might be missing if, we, if we're that preoccupied with this kind of absence narrative. And so one of the things that I really discovered was that sometimes it takes a kind of a lifetime to become a father, to really realise for yourself what it means to be a father. I became a father within the last year, and I reckon it's going to take me a, a while to fully comprehend. You know? whoop, whoop. Big up, Annabelle. <laughs> okay, <good time. laughs> she did the hard work. <laughs> I can't be taking the credit over here. And we're still doing the hard work now. But yeah, that's my partner in crime. Yeah, so a lot of, a lot of men that I spoke to, they might have had difficult, and these, these guys in their 40s now, for example, they might have had difficult relationships with their own children, complex relationships with their own children. But by the time they had maybe a second set of children or they got older, it was almost like they'd learned from the mistakes of their past and they were able to have closer relationships with this second set of children. Or in some instances, when I spoke to some elders, might be, perhaps they migrated overseas, as many did to um, the to elsewhere in the Caribbean, to the UK in the 1960s, they might have actually had really powerful, and I heard so many powerful reunion stories with their children Aww. who felt abandoned by them when they'd migrated to the UK, and for good reason in many instances, but were able to actually recover a relationship with them in later life when they, and, and this is how one woman described it, when they catch themselves. So it's almost like you have a certain moment of kind of realisation at a later point in your life and it might have something to do with the kind of the sense of your own mortality, mm. the sense that kind of your span to your your span in life is is finite, and a certain point when you want to make make right with people before um, you meet the kind of the your judgment day in terms of how many people think about it. I don't know. From my experiences, <laughs> like as I've got older, it's the perspective thing. I can see about what my dad did. He kind of bears it out. So I'm the first lot. Boom, you flee and it. it's gone. He's like a young man. Mm. Second lot, he's a bit older. It's that perspective that you get of age, man. Mm. And then as a young, well, as a young black man, all that shit that goes on, that street life calls you, man. All that madness calls you. But then as you get older, it falls away. And the things that you should have done when you were 20, you start doing when you're 30, 40. And you start seeing what, what really matters. Mm. And it's, it's a yeah, madness. It's, it's so I mad. Friends, it's I'm, trying, I'm trying to think, like, to not put my own subjectivities into what adults saying in terms mm. of thinking of my own yeah family it's so hard because it's just so it's relevant man. it's so relevant and I feel like this is why this sort of work that you're doing is so important in situating these experiences like even though in particular you're talking about the Caribbean though is because there's so many different intricacies to our history and why that's important to the experience in itself like if I think about my own dad like I'm much closer to him now, but wasn't really for various reasons as I was growing up. But now I understand so much more about what it was like for him being a child of empire mm-hmm. and the trauma mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that came with and then being thrown into fatherhood, as you say. Like, mm-hmm. I have so much more understanding mm-hmm. for that. You see, those complexities, as a child, you don't understand that. You don't. But those mm-hmm. complexities are not told to you because people will see you, you're still viewing that framework and that narrative as a black guy who's the absent father mm. and the superficial stuff stands out like 
whether he's angry or he might be angry, he might just be just saying something in it, like mm. it, it, being, being passionate, but that's viewed through a particular lens. Mm. And you get, lab- get all these labels and then that gets passed into you, man. Yeah. And that was something which, which um, came out again and again and again, I think yeah. resonates across the Atlantic to, to the UK as well, is that so many men who had memories of fathers who weren't, never met their expectations, they were determined to make things right with yeah. their own children. And so uh, there is a sense that there's a kind of intergenerational shift which is going on. And even more so, the kind of the, the fundamental kind of idea of the father being predicated on the capacity to provide, protect and correct. Yeah. So the ability to materially meet the needs of children, this is in terms of the kind of the mm-hmm. dominant ideas of what makes a father in the Caribbean context. So if you can't do that, why are you here? Mm-hmm. Or, as, or as I remember some mothers saying, why you come there with your two hands swinging? In, in terms of your hands are empty, right? Mm-hmm. You've not come there bearing anything. So you, you turn up, what are you here for? Yeah, what's your role? And that, this isn't a lot of mothers, that, that's, that's only a number of mothers. I wouldn't say that that's across the board. Many were beginning, and I'd say there is that shift now of increasingly expecting fathers to play a more kind of caring role. And there's an, there's an increasing kind of discourse around what that hands-on care means and the significance of that. The register to talk about it is still, I'd say, isn't isn't fully there. But men are beginning to articulate their own ways of of kind of, of presenting themselves visibly with their children in public way. So the one thing that I really found fascinating in, in some of my research is the way that social media is now being used in terms of, and I call it captioned care. Yeah. So these are these are images, selfies, etc., of you with your child. They might be fell asleep on your chest or whatever, <laughs> and a small statement saying. Um, my world or my heart or nothing better than hanging out with the kids these kinds of drives small... me insane <laughs> drives me insane <laughs> you bro. find it annoying bro, like... you think it's too performative yeah, or, or what? yeah. Listen, that's your... of course you're going to do that bro like, that, I expect that of you if you weren't doing that don't take a picture of it man take mm-hmm. a picture of your trainers man they're working to get the, the, you can see why they would do that it's because they're working to get the, every day of their listen, lives listen, they've got to work listen, against listen, this listen, trope that listen, they are I'm not showing anyone I'm, so if I had a kid myself I'm not looking to show anyone mm. I take care of my own man my family I don't need to, I don't need to perform but that's, for but, so is it a sign of, an, of, of an anxiety in a sense yeah I think then? it's an, who are you performing for mm. but the world that have told them that they're not good enough yeah, or that they're not good fathers you're jumping into so many stereotypes you're sitting there with a wife wife beat with your hair all relaxed and you're sitting bro it's fucking dead it's dead it's 100% dead <laughs> oh that's I'm so, telling I know, you, you I know all, what you're saying all, but I'm not but, gold, you've got your but I think you've got to be more empathetic nah, to... listen I get that but listen you're sitting there with all the signs that you attribute to blackness I see people I see pictures especially in America you've got your gold bracelet on you've got your phone you've got your woman my queen He's my king. Just fuck off. So for you, that's like for you, that's um, what do you call it? Hotepery. Yeah, that yeah. All that. Listen. Okay. Listen, listen just be. Like, it's just, just, yeah, 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 yeah. just be yourself, innit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, listen, if you're if you're taking a picture and you're in the park with your kid, yeah, mm-hmm. or you're walking down the street, boom, standard, innit? But don't set that shit up, man. Mm-hmm, the kid's mm-hmm. innocent, man. You're mm-hmm. the chief, like that. Where it's very performative. When yeah, the guy's just got his fresh, trim fresh, trim, trim, massive, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why man come on social media. Those things drive me insane. But my world. T. Yeah, yeah, standard. I get you, but come out of your sort of view of it and think of it more holistically in terms of what these guys are fighting against. No, no, no. listen, as a black as a black person, no, no, no. he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. As a black person, I'm fed up of performing for anyone. My okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm just no. Do you know what? That's a good. That is actually I'm a good. Performing for anyone anymore, what, man. What, I didn't. What I would say about that about that in a in the specific context that I was interested <clears> in 
in looking at and, and I and I do want to have this transnational conversation because yeah. social media doesn't involve bounded spaces yeah. of the Caribbean, yeah. African American, Black Britain. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Everyone's in kind of in conversation in terms yeah. of transactions of images, right? In this Dominican context, I found that these were the the same guys who who I'd ask questions, for example, about plaiting their children's hair and these kind of things. Yeah, man, it's just something I do. The very short, almost kind of brief, it's not something I'd elaborate on mm. in discussions, but when you're able to observe it, there's an incredible um, video that you can get online, which is about, uh, which is of a, J a Jamaican guy in his yard, um, like working class kind of tenement yard style kind of setting, mm. and a guy who's washing his baby outside, yeah, and he's giving you a commentary on how to scrub the child properly. And he's vigorous with how he's washing the kid. Mm. Yeah, so he's holding the baby by the arm. And it's kind of like, with that, you can get an observation of the day-to-day -day thing of what it is to be a father. Yes, it's somewhat performative, but there's a certain thing of I'm here. It's a kind of a sense of existential recognition. Mm. And that for me, at least, I didn't get a sense that it was for, say, like a white audience who might be saying okay, you're yeah, yeah, a father, yeah. but more it was for the wider society that this is me and this is me with my child and I care about my child. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe it might come from a place of kind of relative, not desperation for want of a better word, but kind of a feeling of a need to yeah, really overperform. I, 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 I think listen, it comes from a, from, a, from a sincere place in some instances. Listen, I you know? get that and I think it comes, definitely comes from a sincere place. I'm mm. not, that's not my problem with it. I think my problem nowadays is like, we don't need to perform anymore. We don't need to tell mm. people this. We just are. Mm -hmm. True. We just are, yeah, and the yeah. more we kind of demark our listen. When I do things, I'm do, like the way I dress, the way I dress, man. The way I speak is the way I speak. Fuck it, man. Like mm -hmm. it's it's too much now, man. And for too long, we perform for ourselves. So when I walk down the street, it's a performance, right? Mm -hmm. When I go somewhere, it's, a, blah, 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 it's tiring, man. Mm -hmm. In and when I see the younger kids, I don't want them to do that, man. Mm -hmm. I just want them to be, and that's and that's the most important thing. Like I get all that stuff. I get the legacies. But we have to, sometimes we're gonna to have to draw those legacies and start building something new, man. Mm. The new something new is to be, just be. Mm. Peter Tosh says, "I am that I am. Yeah. I'm not in this world to live up to your expectations. Neither are you here to live up to mine." You yeah. think it's just to, just to be, man? Mm. It's hard, and I, I I sort of guess, yeah, that existential existence and performance, like. I think I definitely have a, li a little bit more um, empathy towards it. But T, I do get what you're saying. What you're calling for is or, is liberation, basically. Freedom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, freedom to be. And yeah, I guess it's I guess it's a difficult one when with kinship, basically, mm -hmm. it's really difficult. And with all the different traumas that you are sort of draw into in the context of the Caribbean. Mm. And I'd say that uh, kind of academia has been complicit in that. Throughout, yes. Throughout the, the, the history of, particularly of, of various different kind of policy-oriented reports, both in North America and here, when we think, say, about like the Scarman report um, after, the, after right. the riots and so on, that talked about um, kind of single motherhood and, father, and children with absent fathers without discipline and the kind of debates which were playing out and the same old tired tropes we've been played into. And if we go back in history, we've got the Moynihan Report in, mm. um, in North America, which talks about kind of absent black fathers within the context of urban US environments, again, as kind of feeding into a culture of poverty and joblessness and all of these mm -hmm. kind of different things, which and, and things that are, that are seen to kind of 
plague black communities because of some inherent cultural disposition. And also the Fletcher Report as well mm. in the UK. I think that was actually, was that in Bristol and Cardiff as well? Fletcher mm. Report, That's talking about, yeah, 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 talking mm. about 19, talk, 1920s. Yeah, the Fletcher Report basically was trying to stress that there was concern around these, in quotations, half-caste children mm-hmm. and, the bla- mm-hmm. and the blackness that was in their lives and how that was going to plague the, their families mm-hmm. and Britain as a whole. Real anxieties in places like Liverpool and Bristol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and this, is what, this is what I'm trying to get. Those configurations were put on us still, right? The configurations of what a family is. The configuration. It's not allowed that, man. Like, so what if my dad wasn't there? Like, boom. It's, it's me and my mum. Yeah. Mm. Standard, isn't it? Like, and yeah. what? And what? And this is what we need to understand. Like, those configurations, yeah, so if your dad's not there, man. I understand the legacies and all the histories involved, right? But being present, it's worked. Whatever, whatever, however it's configured itself, it's worked, right? And none of my friends, none of my peer group, they're in prison. They're all doing good jobs. They're all good dads, man. They've all got, they've all got that configuration of a nuclear family. But now. do you think that that, just talking, just speaking back to what Adam was saying about how the generate, like, change over generations, there do is, you think particularly your... Like black my, peers my that didn't people, have dads people. have wanted to do better. Definitely, there's an integrated. Mm. Yeah. there's obviously there's always going to be intergenerational thing because there's a link, right? Because you can't, you can never dismiss the past. Mm. So there's always an intergenerational thing. But the configurations that we have are so varied and complex that there's no such thing as a standard family. Mm-hmm, 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 and once we understand, it and we're like, why are we you're leaving up to the idea of notion of being provided for who? Mm-hmm. If your dad, if your dad, you're then you're there, you're there, right? It's, we're both equal. We're both in this thing together. But it's a configuration that I'm defining. Mm. Not letting these guys tell me what to do anymore, but just to be. So if your family, if, you, if you've got one parent, if you've got three parents, whatever it is, mm-hmm. if it works, it works, man. On that exact note, there's something I wrote recently called um, Coming to Terms with Caribbean Families, which mm. talks about exactly that. I draw extensively there on the work of Merle Hodge, who's mm-hmm. a Trinidadian feminist and, and literary write, like, writer, writes novels. Uh, but also interjects every now and again in sociological debates when it's time for it. Mm. Um, and she basically talks about, she's talking about Trinidad, but we can elaborate that to the Caribbean, mm. to Caribbean mm. and Afro diasporas more broadly, I think, as well in many instances. She talks about there's no single kind of family in the Caribbean. We've got nuclear families, yes, but often families are more thought of in terms of networks. Yes. Networks of people who play various different roles at different points in our lives rather than a father must be, a mother must be, a grandparent must be, <laughs> right? So at a given moment, it might be the case that the family friend who's a nurse who lives in the same village, who's had a close relationship with the child from a very young age, when a family member needs to migrate overseas, it might be that that becomes a kind of a informal kind of fosterage or adoption and, and the child comes to live with this woman and is raised almost as, as their mother. <laughs> and so for so many people that I spoke with, people would refer to like an auntie, for example, as my mother outside of my mother. Mm. So they had a deep respect for the woman that carried them nine, nine months and deep love for that woman and, and kind of admiration for her, but also had a very close bond with the person who pragmatically raised them, developed those kin bonds in everyday practical ways with them over a sustained period of time to develop those close relationships. But our preoccupation with the role and the function of mother and father will completely miss the significance of that, that second woman's role, right? You see, this is the madness, right? So... Even though we're kind of locked into kind of European European configurations, if you go back to antiquity, European configurations of family did the same. You'll send someone to, to be adopted by someone completely different to look after them, and so these things they have a, they have a precedent in Europe. Mm. But it's since we've hopped into this nineteenth-century notion, which is kind of I suppose academia, like I said, complicit in pushing these notions onto people. The idea that things have to be structured and named in a certain way, and and they're forever the same. 
So this, these enlightened principles that fatherhood is the same and universal, extended onto the future, it's, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. It always has been wrong. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing, and this is a massive philosophical problem, is that the enlightenment has never reconciled between the universal and the particular. Mm-hmm. It seeks to universal, universalise everything, mm-hmm. but you can never do that, man, because there's always an exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. And that within, because of the circumstances that we've inhabited in context of migration and scarcity, mm-hmm. amongst the kind of intense pressures of plantation life, our, our communities have, have always practised mm-hmm. kinship in very dynamic ways. Mm-hmm. And not just as a kind of a function of these kinds of hardships, but because of the nature of life. Mm-hmm. Life is always potentially uncertain, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea that we would... But the problem is, is that because of the kind of the, the colonialism, in a sense, working at, operating at the level of values, mm. the values in terms of what is considered right and wrong, is what we were talking about before we got into this discussion mm-hmm. in terms of ideas about respectability, mm-hmm. there's a certain value given to one family configuration, so the nuclear family, and it's given certain privilege and weight above these more dynamic configurations that we actually find playing out in everyday life. Oh, and my so God, it's, it's even enacted in the law. Right, yeah, yeah, oh, completely, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even in these really peculiar ways, so I remember going to the, the Dominica National Archives and I kept finding this really funny thing that was coming up again and again in newspapers called a wife notice. A wife notice. What? And this is, this is a real this kind sounds, of... This right. sounds... This sounds messed up. So you can sell your wife. Um, and not quite, not quite, but it's, it's almost as ridiculous, right? So the idea is that a man's wife has gone rogue <laughs> and she's going around get, potentially getting credit or going shopping or doing whatever. And he, in the classified adverts... He names who his wife is and he names himself so that anybody who she might go and extend credit from or on behalf of the family, he's saying, I'm no longer res- responsible for this, this woman, right? So the idea of the paternal authority is so much ingrained within the site and that's inherited, right? That that even plays out in terms of these peculiar notices which would be put out as classification mm. in the classified ads. Do you know what I mean? Just as, just as an, an example. Another side of that as well is that I spent a lot of time, time observing the, um, the courts as well. So child support cases. Oh my god! In many many That's instances, really interesting. and it was just fascinating. In many many instances, because there wasn't a marital relationship, then the mother didn't have the same recourse for funds from the husband, which would have been automatic. And also, Mate. she also had to prove the paternity, at least in terms of the putative paternity. So make a make a viable case for how the child was conceived. And just think about the kind of humiliation of that, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to go into court and you have to kind of say who the father of your child is. And then you have to try and get the court to track him down and so on. If they were married, that would be automatic. It'd be mm-hmm. automatic that the, I mean, the flip side of it was that you got a lot of very frustrated fathers who had very complicated relationships, both with the mothers as well as with their children. And so there was a whole heap of mess that we wouldn't be able to go into. But I wonder it was interesting if, in all of it. I wonder if that stuff was inherited through empire because that is identical to the UK courts. Mm. Like you have, mm. no, you if you're not married to your baby father yeah. you're uh, fucked mm-hmm. like that is but it, i think it's trying to through in law trying to enforce a certain type of morality christian yeah. morality mm-hmm. yes exactly through, through law, the, right? i was calling it values but morality yeah. Is yeah. 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 yeah so you're yeah. trying to enforce something so you're saying the value we want the morality we want to kind of is to be married regardless of what happens but then this is you can trace that back to like working class families here people do some mm. in horrendous situations and like with the wife sell people sell they sell their wife because i think the practice went from the 17th to the 18th century you could write a notice in the paper and say, listen, I've agreed. My wife, she's just doing my nothing. I'm going to sell her to someone else. And they'll, they'll agree to sell it. In relation to the morality around the, the idea of the nuclear family as well, we're missing, there's an elephant in the room, mm-hmm. which is the C word. 
capitalism <laughs> insofar <laughs> as right <laughs> mm. say I'm not that bold <laughs> no but in terms of in terms of the unit of governance right mm. the unit of governance the idea being the nuclear family yeah. and the idea being that okay you've got productive labour you've got reproductive labour the reproductive labour of the household takes place domestically mm. and is unmarked and it's not waged and then the productive labour of the household happens extra domestically i.e. out in industry in the workplace and <laughs> so on and that that's the role of the, the function of the father and then the mother is to reproduce the household mm-hmm. so you've got these very simplistic kind of ideals units of governance tax breaks for those who conform right oh that's here it's what, that's exactly here. that's what yeah, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. Right. yeah 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 so exactly that so we reward like guys we reward people that align themselves with patriarchy and capitalism like that is what we do yeah but I, globally I, I, that's the game isn't it that's the game to reproduce that system why for domination right but then because of the because of the morality that's attached to it as well then we find ourselves as kind of post post colonial subjects however you might yeah. have to be in a position in the world as still conforming to that in some way right 100% but this is and so of my, of my own situation. Well, yeah, yeah. Of my own situation, I tried to think to myself, like, for a while, I did try to conform, man. And then one day, I think, well, but that's just maybe not me. Is, is everyone meant to get married? Is everyone meant to have a kid? You're assuming, like I said, this idea of a universal that everyone can do. It's, every, it's not going to mm. happen because your life's different. We're not all starting from the same places. And I think this is one of the things I've kind of noticed as I've got older. From the age of 16, we're no longer the same. We've all chosen different paths, man. At school, you're all the same, mm. doing the same thing. Then one day, two years later, you're all doing different things. You end up mm. in different places. And those experiences make you who you are. So maybe, like, the way my life's gone, the choices I've made, boy, I was never going to be with anyone. Man, I was just raving, man. Mm. That was, my, that was mm. my girlfriend, right? So it's understanding. It's that, again, it's that perspective, man. All the time you're challenging those norms, but you don't realise that you are. Mm. And when you do get married, it's not for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. You're not conforming mm-hmm. to those configurations or based on Western morality. You might have got reason married for a completely different reason. Mm. Dare I say it? Some might get married for love. <laughs> <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> See, so I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play this back to you in like two years' time when you're like you've, nah, you've got married. Up. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like, two years' time will be a different person. Isn't it so it's different Definitely. reasons, man. On that note, I just want to j- jump in quickly. I think to be able to articulate these things on your own terms is important. So my aim by, by referring to this and to bring it back just to the research just quickly, by referring to it as the, as the myth of the dead father, the idea is that the aim is to kind of flee the hold of the plantation in a sense in terms of determining the afterlives of people within post-plantation societies. Even saying it sounds like we're still not got away from it. But the we idea have a, we have is to be able to understand kinship or family, mm-hmm. your role within a family mm-hmm. on your own terms grounded in your lived experience, mm-hmm. grounded in how you relate to others in your community and others within your network, right? Rather than these always being on terms that restricted you and that were grounded in these moralities of elsewhere that applied to a different place and time or different people. Go on, go on. I was just going to say, that's so powerful. Like, and that is... We, yeah, I wish... I wish I, I know I'm complicit in not doing that. Like, I let the past dictate so much of how I think about myself in the world but listen I, I don't think you can I can never separate from myself from the past yeah. right what's happened's happened and sometimes I'm salty from the past right mm-hmm. 
So I sometimes I've got a right to be pissed off. Mm-hmm. But equally... Can we get a Cockney translation there? What, salty? Just yeah. like, just a bit fucking <laughs> pissed off about it, all right? <laughs> but, like, but equally, I'm trying to use the past to push me push me forward, man. Mm-hmm. To understand... Like, now I know how you people roll. Mm-hmm. I know how I roll. So we, I'm tr- in that system now, I'm trying to make my own space, a new space. Mm-hmm. But you're always... Again, from my background, it's a, it's a dialectical process, right? Mm-hmm. The past is the thesis... Antithesis mm. and the synthesis is something new. Whatever that that thing is, mm. whether it's me, you, we're all something that's never existed before, right? Because we're not we're not we're not as tied to the legacy of the past as our parents were or our grandparents mm. were. So every generation is is shifting. So when I see my when I see my little cousin and she's she's fully middle class man, fully doesn't even speak like me, doesn't roll the same ends as me. No, it's just different, right? But she's she's a different person. Like I said, there's no one way of being black, man. Mm. And I see her and her configuration is different. Her values are different. And that's freedom, isn't it? And, and that's mm-hmm. and you see that configuration different. So this is it. This is she's still mindful of the past because she can't deny who her parents are. She can't deny where she grew up. But it's always changing, man. It's always shifting. Mm-hmm. And so when one of my friends yesterday called someone a coconut, well, I said, "Listen, you're a fuck. this guy's. It's a dead chat." That's but, retro, man. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I said to him, "I said, I said, how dare you, man? Like mm-hmm. this person's just been different, man. And it's, it, who say the less black? You don't know." What is mm-hmm. less black? Even though that term is ridiculous. Mm. But I said that configuration is a different configuration. They're taking all the things that's made them, them, and making something new, man. Something mm-hmm. that you haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful thing, right? Beautiful. Beautiful. That's, not, that's proper age. Proper age there. So, like, <laughs> literally, always <laughs> making me think philosophically about life. Um, Adam, you've got to talk to us about your more recent research as well because it's fascinating and it's timely, it's important. Do you want to tell us about what you've been working on more recently? I didn't expect for us to talk about fatherhood for so long, but it's such a powerful subject, mm-hmm. so I'm glad that we did anyway. But yeah, your more recent research. I think um, Tizzo's last point about the kind of presence of the past is, is a nice segue into mm-hmm. my current research at the moment. So if you're, if you're a researcher of the Black Atlantic, of the Caribbean, the past is probably present today with us, right? We saw that in terms of just close to here at Goldsmiths. We saw that in terms of the occupation of Deptford Town Hall recently. Mm. And the question of reparations for the history of enslavement and of transatlantic kidnap at the scale which it happened is a live one, yeah? So we've got a current conversation which is going on at the University of West Indies who's just established a centre for reparations research headed up by Hilary Beckles who's been doing some fantastic work. Is that linked to Glasgow University? Is that the one that's linked to Glasgow? Yeah, so, he's yeah, been, yeah. so he, was, he was kind of foundational to that collaboration in terms, wow. of, in terms of that work, right? And the reason I want to connect that with a conversation around hurricanes is because if we think about the, the current climate crisis that Greta Thunberg and all these people are talking about mm. and, uh, and the um, Extinction Rebellion are, are kind of rising up against in opposition to. And then we think about the history of the Caribbean. There are some incredibly important connections that we need to draw out. So we can think about the Caribbean as the test site for capitalism in terms of, and this has been well kind of documented by um, people like Eric Williams, Sidney Mintz and others. The kinds of techniques that were, that were deeply industrial, that were that were pioneered in the Caribbean would later go on to be used in kind of a field factory kind of setup in terms of the in terms of the production processing in terms of the times of cutting in terms of the way that it was documented all of this sugar extractive economy later informed the kinds of um, 
the kinds of techniques that were used in the factory production in the takeoff, line, right? the, the production line, right, yeah. to put it simply. So we see that then as being the beginning of capitalism in a sense, yeah? These things were kind of pioneered in the Caribbean and, then, and also the invested profits of sugar were then invested back, repatriated, if you will, to the metropole to launch the kind of takeoff of the Industrial Revolution here. This is the kind of the Eric Williams thesis. With that as well, things like coffee and sugar, tobacco, hunger killers, right, for the working class populations based here, who weren't getting enough calorific intake when they're working within various different industries, they were able to quell their hunger by using all of these imperial products which had come from the Caribbean. So if we're thinking about racial capital, and we can call it that, we'll call it racial capital, the black subsidy for capitalism, as in the kind of the, the, the kind of layer of unpaid or underpaid labor that props up or has propped up North Atlantic capitalism, then we can create direct connections between that, the kind of the takeoff of the Industrial Revolution, and the emergence of the Anthropocene, as we began to billow and pump thousands and thousands of square meters or units, I don't know exactly what, of coal into the atmosphere, yeah? And so we can see the takeoff of the Industrial Revolution led to the slow transformation of the climate, the biosphere of this planet. Now the Caribbean is on the front line, and this is bringing to my research. I took a while to get there, but it, took, no, it takes a while I'm, to talk I was about very, Like I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. I'm, I'm right behind you. Like <laughs> okay, my mind's blown. We're, we're all here. So we, so we get to the present in the Caribbean now. And we've got the existential threat of hurricanes. Yeah. So these are intensified storms, which are, which are of a, of a, of a magnitude that the, that the region hasn't witnessed before, and that they're amplified by their strength is amplified amplified by the rising temperature of the atmosphere in contact with the sea and causing these kind of devastating cyclones. Um, so where I do field work in Dominica, as I've mentioned, in 2015, after I finished uh, field work in 2014, came, came back to the UK to write up my PhD. In 2015, got hit by Tropical Storm Erica. Yeah, wiped out most of the infrastructure of the island, whole communities were displaced. They weren't inhabitable anymore because of the steep, um, the, the steep topography of the island, really rugged, mountainous island, too prone to flooding. They had to just abandon entire communities and move people elsewhere. They've only just been rehoused on the island. 2015, Tropical Storm Erica hit Dominica. 2017, when I first started here at, here at Goldsmiths, as I was preparing in the September, September the 18th, as I was preparing my course material for my first weeks of teaching, I was at the same time trying to get hold of family members in the Caribbean because Hurricane Maria was on its way to the island and there was a square hit with the eye of the storm and Dominica. It turns out that the, that the storm wiped out, well, it, it, it killed 31 people, disappeared a disputed number, but we think between 34 and 37, and wiped out what has been estimated at 225% of the GDP of the island. The, the country was entirely flattened. Irma and Maria, within the space of a month, I think it is, caused severe devastation in Puerto Rico, as we know, in the, the Virgin Islands, in St. Martin as well, and multiple other islands. So this existential threat of hurricanes is real and it's present. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring together some of the research I'd already done because I felt an urgent need to speak to some of these issues in, in my work and think about in what ways Caribbean populations are using these kinds of networks that we've talked about, which have enabled them to deal with the kinds of chaos that was brought by enslavement and various different things like structural adjustment and so on, how are they using their everyday networks and social resources to be able to cope with this existential threat? So thinking about how we're using to, 
kinship to, to, to face up this kind of adversity. And so that's where my work is at at the moment, thinking about various different things about the relationships of Dominican, a predominantly agricultural island to their environment, but also thinking about these wider questions of redress and reparations as a forward-looking project. Okay. So thinking, given these histories that we've spoken about, mm -hmm. thinking about how rather than aid, we should be talking about different kinds of investments as an act of redress for this history, mm -hmm. which was visited on the Caribbean in the first instance, yeah. in terms of the takeoff of capital and now returns to the Caribbean. We see this is the thing. The capitalist argument is this was all set up for one reason, extraction alone. Mm. It wasn't set, It wasn't a two-way thing. It was a one-way process, right? So therefore, for the West, reparations becomes a moral argument. Am I morally obliged mm -hmm. to help you? Structurally and, and functionally, it makes sense. But morally, they're going to say no. Mm. Because they feel they cannot apologise because that, that means wrongdoing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the EU ruled on that. They can never say sorry. They can say they have misgivings, a mistake was made, but they can never say the word sorry and seek to redress that through financial means. Mm. Because it becomes a moral question because they'll never ever set up as a functional or institutional arrangement. And then that opens them up to a legal claim. As well. Exactly. So you accept responsibility, so legally, you accept liability. Exactly. So they cannot mm. say sorry. And that's what CARICOM attempting to, to launch with Hilary Beckles as the kind of the brain behind mm -hmm. that, along with various different member states who come together, mm -hmm. to launch the legal case for reparations on mm -hmm. those terms. And so I'm trying to kind of add it, uh, following the lead of Hilary Beckles, mm -hmm. she's very much talking about the effects of hurricanes as well, yeah. thinking about that in terms of future in, in investment in the region and within its diaspora as well. So the relationship they have tends to be with any country that has this, any kind of post-colonial legacy, is that they will reinvest, but as a loan. Mm -hmm, so you'll exactly. pay me back. Mm -hmm, you will pay. And so this is, we've been, well, from the structural adjustment programs in the 70s and 80s, it's all done through loans, mm -hmm. man. So this is how quite interesting how China steps in. China steps in and says, we'll give you the money and we'll build you something. But we don't need to pay you back yet because they know, China know most of these countries will default on their loans because mm -hmm. the IMF know they default on their loans and the World Bank. But the game is not about... It's about investment in the country itself so they can take it over. It's a political kind of thing. Two things. So they, there's, a, there's a dynamic in terms of these memoranda of understanding that mm -hmm. China will sign with various different um, governments who they're, who they're giving these big yeah, infrastructural yeah. Um, gifts to. And the second one is the kind of the... And anthropology can be quite useful for this, thinking about this notion of the gift, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about aid, and this applies also to the IMF and the World Bank and so on as well, the idea is that the spirit of the gift is that any gift demands reciprocity. <clears throat> and if I've been given something, there's a certain energy that comes with, or the spirit of the gift, is that, and this is kind of, this is classic Marcel Mauss, right? <clears throat> the idea is that I have to repay you. So if the aid industry and humanitarian aid, various different kinds of bilateral development aid, is being cast as a gift somehow, it flips the moral playing field, if you will, <clears throat> yeah? <clears throat> so the sense there is that, is that the, the Caribbean is somehow then indebted, it, it, it owes a debt of gratitude, right. when, in actual fact, in terms of the reparation claim, it's like that balance has already been skewed. The racial capital subsidy has already been paid by black people, mm -hmm. right? But somehow, by some sleight of hand, that's been flipped on its head. So it actually becomes the other way around, where... I think it kind of falls into that notion of the idea the colonial project was for your improvement. Mm. So any debt I owe you, I've given you nationhood. <laughs> So this is this is this is if you look at the dialogue, of, of, especially in the 1970s, in, in kind of the deep, deep giving kind of, railways, yeah, giving you railways, we give you this, and you, when mm. you're ready for it, we'll let you go. So, for, for especially in the British Empire, how it was put across, we were always going to give it back to you. 
Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think Harold, Harold McMillan said something like that in 1973. Like, mm. we prepared it and we're going to give it back. This, we're always going to give it back to you. So, but we prepared you for nationhood. So the idea that we're taking you from being a... Through modernisation, right? So from mm. pre-modern to modern. We've made you, and that kind of fits into that, narrative of that framework of anthropology, from a primitive into a modern man. Mm. We give you all the things, the infrastructure state, the nation state, railways, roads, schools, mm-hmm. government, all the things that make us, make mm. the British or whoever it is, who we are. And that, that also you can take that, as you're saying, and so you've, you've said it in the modernisation terms, we could also put that into a kind of a kinship register as well. Mm. When we think about these paternalistic relationships, that I will now bequeath you this because you're old enough to be able to handle the responsibility of it, yeah. right? That's exactly Super it. Super Sorry, I've just been sat here with my arms crossed, just pissed <laughs> off. Like, I'm just, I'm just pissed off. I'm pissed off. Have you spent quite a bit of time on the island since the hurricane? So, only a month. So, in t- terms of sort of rebuilding, what is happening? Like, how it... I mean, considering how devastating all of this is, how is everyone, what are the dynamics that are playing out now in the, on the island from when you were doing field work for your PhD compared to now? Mm-hmm. So the parts of the community where I was based, which is just south of the capital, Rosa in the southwest of the island, um, was almost unrecognisable um, to what I remember from 2014 when I came back in 2018. Um, must have been That must have been really... That must have been really hard. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it, it was just. So it was six months after the storm, I had arrived in back in Dominica. Um, there were close friends, one of my neighbours who'd lost his life during the storm. Other friends who were living under tarpaulin. Um, uh, family members who still had bits of roof, roofs being put back together when we were there. Going up to the village where my grandfather retired, that my grandfather retired back to, was like kind of blue city. So every other um, roof was covered in a blue tarpaulin and it was interesting you could kind of the landscape was marked by the various different aid agencies right so when part of that aid gift is that you write on your yeah. branding is on branding, there, right? it's, it's branded so in USAID it. barrels you've got USAID um, tarpaulins and various different organisations as well um, and one thing that I just people just people seemed exhausted they just seemed exhausted and were much slimmer as well. So the combination of, oh of um, the amount of work that they'd been doing in terms of clearing debris. Food. So because, like I was saying, it's this really rugged island, uh-huh. real dense vegetation. Um, the majority of the island is mountain and rainforest. So what had happened was that um, was that the winds had brought down large trees and the flood waters had floated them down through the swollen rivers, through communities which centre on rivers because it's a natural water source, yeah? Um, so these trees that were coming down... Were just left there now. Were just, yeah, they were just left there. And so the by the time I got there, most of that debris had been cleared. But when you saw pictures, it was kind of... It was just old wood, as people referred to it. it old rotting. wood, up to head height, of just pieces just splintered everywhere. Dang so just that work of clearing yards, clearing, clearing streets, that had taken its toll on people's bodies. The exhaustion, the, the stress, the kind of the, the P- undiagnosed PTSD of so many people... Um, it was almost like I could see people. You could the the stress was present on on people, on people ex- externally. Also, you could feel it in the atmosphere, man. When you go there, you can you can see it. Like the trauma. They, they, they just they, they look upset, man. You know, like you get on the train on a Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Before you even see something, you sense that mm-hmm. that somberness in people, man. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Grenada, it's the same thing. You can sense it in there, man. You get off from the airport, and it feels sad. Because mm-hmm. it's a sad feeling. That's how they feel. But I was gonna say to you, what is it? What interests me is the kind of capital, capital inflows, right? 
So mm-hmm. in a disaster, people make money. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. who's making money? So, this, so, so I'm going to say insurance mm-hmm. companies, building companies, and what are they, and what's their response? Because mm-hmm. no one does something for nothing. Mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. that capitalist kind of mantra. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people on the note of of. Um, and this is something which I haven't researched, so I can't speak to in too much detail, but I'm, I'm interested to as the project moves forward as well. Mm. Two things. So on the one hand, you've got the various different insurance companies, um, people who paid um, for, for various different kinds of coverage. Almost invariably, everybody I spoke to received significantly less than what their expectation was and less than what, what the costs of their the, the, the repairs premium. were to their houses. Okay. So they paid their premiums, they kept up with everything, and then in the details of the of the small print, there were certain things that they weren't covered for, similar to what you hear kind of playing out in, in Hurricane Katrina. So family members who were expecting or who were hoping for something to cover around 10 grand's worth of damages would be receiving around three, and we're talking pounds now, converting it, um, 3,000 pounds worth, of, worth <coughs> of money. So they had to make up that shortfall in the context where food prices, because there's a scarcity, uh, sometimes inflating, <coughs> and where there are other kinds of additional costs in day-to-day life as well. The other thing that I wanted to add as well, which is something to really kind of, which I'm really keeping my eye on now in the context of Dominica, which I haven't fully made up my mind on, but I'm just kind of um, monitoring at this stage, is what they call the Citizenship by Investment Program, referred to as CBI. This is where you can buy a passport for various, most Caribbean countries have them, um, particularly the smaller states. You can, If you make a, a sizable investment within a country, you can buy citizenship of that country. Um, in Dominica, I think it's upwards of about 200,000 US, US dollars and more significant investments mean that you don't have to be present on the island to, to kind of run businesses and whatnot. It's kind of no questions yeah. asked kind of thing. And oh so these God. funds are actually interestingly being used and kind of leveraged for various different projects, national resilience projects, by the government. So on the one hand, you've got these suspicious and kind of dubious characters who are buying up various different plots of land, boutique hotels, boutique ecotourist resorts, timeshares in these various different hotels and so on, at the same time as that money is being used to kind of... to to pay for development projects. So it's this peculiar kind of double-edged... You see, those things... Double-edged kind of investment. Some South American countries use that same system. So mm. you can buy you can buy parts of the country because, like I said, they don't have the funds, right? So you're looking for funds from anywhere. So, but it opens up the kind of door to shady dealings and to mm. the detriment of who? Mm. People who, who need really need the help. So they get their house rebuilt, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. I've just bought your government. Mm-hmm. Exactly, these big tra- potential tracts of land being being kind of um, being bought up. So I'm 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 watching that one carefully without <laughs> any clear conclusions, <laughs> but with a certain degree of kind of healthy scepticism. I think, as as are many within the society, there's a public conversation going going on around it at the moment. This has been like amazing, <laughs> and I don't I really don't want to finish, but we are going to have to finish as um. Thank you so much for joining us. My G. Thank you so much for having no, me. Yeah, yeah. So, big, you're so big, clear. Love, love, love. Like, you so such much. amazing research. Always so clear. Like, what a great, what a great episode. Thank you so much, listeners. Patrons, we've got another episode for you. If you have the means, don't worry if you don't, to join our Patreon. Please Give me your do. money. Give me your money. <laughs> there you go. All the money for the podcast. All the podcast. All the money for the podcast. All the money for the podcast goes towards making the podcast happen. Yeah, so thank you, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. Please like, rate, and subscribe. You can also find more of us on Twitter and Instagram.